HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for PASA's 2024 conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Don't miss over 70 educational sessions on farming and food systems, plus an expansive trade show. Learn more at pasafarming.org slash HRN2024. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. This week, we're heading back to my hometown of Philadelphia to chat with Colin McFadden and Chef Drew DeTomo, two of the founders of the new restaurant, bar, taproom, meeting house. It is a beautifully designed space, and we chat about that design, why they wanted to open up a spot in Philadelphia, what it means to carry on the legacy of being a local, and how they have weaved themselves into the fabric of the neighborhood. And then we're deep diving into the archive for a performance from Joycelyn McKenzie, who swung by to debut her solo album, Push, which was written entirely for string quartet. It's a beautiful, urethral performance, and we were ho- and we were so happy that she stopped by to share it with us. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HRN. Listen up, the whole world's in the flux of a fever, sent to search and destroy by the ether. Everyone's either breaking up. Or breaking down Who'd have known We would both end up Smolderly lonely Now I've only one thought When you phone me Will you heal me from Bottom up Or top down Cause you make it better Better, 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 better you make it better, 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 better. You make it better, 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 better than it was. Mm-hmm. Simmer down, no one said a thing about forever. But I need you right now more than ever. 
praise and thanks to the space-time continuum that it's always now because you make it better 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 you make it better 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 you make it better 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 than it was we have all lost it battle before and we can't stand to lose anymore but if we don't let go and get vulnerable then fear will have won the whole war that's no victory that i can afford you and i have been mutual blessings for ages on with staff with which notes on what pages the melody to a song gonna get written down anyhow we will come out the other side smiling and i'm grateful you're here and you're trying oh let's go for it bottoms up and top down because you make it better 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 you make it better 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 you make it better and 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 better hello and welcome to snacky tunes I'm very happy because we're talking to two guys from Philly, which you know puts a big smile on my face, Colin and Drew from Meeting House. Welcome to the show. Appreciate making the time. Yeah, thanks. Dude, thanks for having us. You know, growing up in Philly and coming back home, I always loved going to the local bars. And I felt that so many spots are just like lived in in the city. And I'm thinking of like, Bob and Barbara's and then sneaking into Ortlieb's when I was in high school. Um, What do you think makes the bars and the taverns in Philly so unique outside of any other city? Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That is a, that's a, that's a great question because I I feel it. I agree Mm -hmm. with you. There is that like very lived in quality. I mean, I got to think some of it has to do just with the history of the city it being a long history as far as like American mm-hmm. cities are, are concerned. It's, it's a relatively long history. You know, it's like the, the kind of like waves of immigrants. Um, and I, I think when it comes to like some of the taverns, certainly like the Irish immigrants, yeah. um, I think architecturally the types of spaces that are built, um, and that wind up being taverns, like have a special feel to them. And I think our space is like a great example of that as a corner, a corner bar space with like the bar room in the front and a very separated kind of dining room in the back. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I think there's, I think there's a lot of dimension to it. Um, but I, I, I completely agree. There is like a palpable um, Philly barness to to philly bars uh for better or worse because sometimes <laughs> that's a really great thing and other times it's like it, 
not as not as great um but even when it isn't as great it's special because of its its uniqueness um yeah yeah um you know going back a little bit you you both have been part of the food and drink and dining scene in philly which look saying it's coming to its own is is sort of a trite thing to say because i feel like it's really established itself as one of the best cities to eat and drink in america um drew you were at amis which is you know one of the most legendary spots now closed but what drew you to the philly food scene what what were the opportunities you saw there versus a different like east coast Um, city honestly like comfort it's home you know um but Mm. i you know i've been in this city cooking for my whole life let's just say since like I don't know. I was like a late teenager. So it, it, it always just kind of felt right to come back here. I, I left and went to culinary school in upstate New York. And, you know, you're, you're, I wanted to live in New York. I wanted to work in New York um, or SF or Chicago. Like those mm-hmm, were all kind mm-hmm. of the big cities. I were, you know, they, they still are, I would say like these big culinary meccas. But back then when I was coming up, like those were really it. Like, Oh yeah. And um Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I I definitely failure to launch on like Chicago and, and SF when I was younger. I totally wanted to do it and I got scared. <laughs> but like I don't want to mm. just say that I was like lazy or scared and that's what led me to Philly just that. <laughs> it was also just I it was cool. It was so fun kind of coming up in this this industry and being here and in Philly and like, dude, I grew up reading Craig LeBond's reviews and like, I loved it. Of course. I, I cherished kind of that and wanted to be a part of that. And dude, I remember when his labor two article came out, I was opening a little BYOB out in Narberth. I was, it was my first sous chef job mm. and I was like super psyched and I was working like hand in hand with this dude, this, this chef operator. And we like poured over that review like front to back and read it because it was a glowing three bell it was cool <laughs> and it was just like really cool to i don't know like I, that, yeah. that resonates a lot with me with this city and like you know there's some reverence to those those things that make philly special and i think like the philadelphia inquirer specifically is like it's like a nationally recognized publication and that it was and i feel like craig's got some class yeah. i don't know all these things kind of pointed m- me in the direction of staying here and being a part of it and you know and as networks grow you just kind of it feels good it feels like home you know it just because it is home but you know it, it just felt right it felt right to stay here you know you bring up a good point because in the early aughts mid aughts it was like yeah. new york san francisco chicago and then that started to shift and then i definitely think like post 2020 Everyone was like, it's just, I don't want to struggle in a way that seems unnecessary to achieve a vision that I can have in a place where like yeah. my friends and families are. And like, I don't need to be in one of these big cities to get national such an recognition. Um, <laughs> like business is business I know, everywhere. I know. It's like, um, yeah, yeah I, I, I know. But you know, we're, it, the industry is yes. its own worst enemy sometimes where it's like, Oh, you did a good job, but it wasn't at this level or wasn't this mm-hmm. thing. Um, now, Colin, I remember, I remember hearing about 
tired hands before I came back to the city. And it was really like one of the first breweries that I'd heard about um, coming out of Philly that was doing something different, but mm. mostly because um, my good lifelong friend, your buddy, Sean McGinnis was working there. and was telling me, he's like, there are these guys doing beer in a way that you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to what you were just saying, Drew, like, I actually don't think you could have done it in almost any other city than Philadelphia. Right. Um, for those who right. might not be familiar with Tired Hands, can you give a little bit of the history and your role with them? Yeah, Tired Hands is a is a, a brewery um, that opened in 2012 in the western suburbs of Philadelphia, very close, it sounds like, to where you grew up uh, in, in a town called Ardmore. Um, I, I grew up in Balakinwood. In Balakinwood, so yeah. yeah, I mean, two two towns over on the mm-hmm. on the regional rail. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, so it opened in 2012, and, um, you know, I became aware of it about a year before that. And connected with the founder, this guy Gene, um, who had been working at like a local brew pub chain called Iron Hill. And he had what at that time seemed like a completely unique vision to me mm-hmm. to brew primarily uh, like French slash Belgian inspired farmhouse type beers yeah. um, made with yeasts that he had kind of cultivated himself. Uh, and that were unique to this like homebrew operation that he had going that he was doing on the side. And then these like certain kind of hoppy beers that now we would call like hazy IPAs. But at the time they were just this different way of brewing IPAs. They, the bitterness was lower than say like a Sierra Nevada, like a West coast type IPA. And it was much more aromatic focused heavily on like dry hopping. So it was basically we're brewing saisons and we're brewing hoppy ales that are delicately bitter and really like juicy and aromatic in 2012 that was like really kind of unique and special so yes yes. i was very drawn to it i uh helped them open the original spot they have several locations by now but um the original spots this really kind of diy uh brew pub type thing we called it the brew cafe because pub felt like too grandiose for what the kitchen did. It was more like paninis and salads and cold foods and things like that. Um, And it had a brewery in the back. Uh, So I worked there from really 2011 when construction started until 2021. Um, So it was, you know, 10 year, 10 year, 10 year and worked several roles there starting, you know, as like a bartender and then working my way slowly into the brewery, which was my initial ambition when I first connected with them was to get into the brewery Um, and then, you know, sort of evolved with the company as it grew and it grew. Um, And by the time I left, my role was director of brewing operations, which sort of oversaw production at the company's three production facilities. And um, yeah, we were, we were doing about 10,000 barrels of beer production uh, annually, which is, honestly a tiny amount of beer but for me felt like quite a lot and it yes. was Re- Re- it's all relative it's all yeah, relative. it's all relative so yeah so um and uh and yeah i mean i would be remiss if i didn't mention that like there has been some uh some issues um with the company in the last several years yeah, that like i really I won't get into the details of um that have kind of made my history with them more complicated than i wish it were I know. Um, but you know, it is what it is. And, um, you know, all the mixed emotions, notwithstanding, I do owe a lot to my time there. And I met some of my favorite people, um, in working there and, and really it's sort of like, 
it laid the groundwork for my um my time there laid the groundwork for a lot of kind of where I'm at now and uh, and informed a lot of my like perspective that I'm trying to convey with meeting house no of course and listen uh different podcasts are a different time but there's been exactly. a lot of reckonings in the industry that mm-hmm. is is a more complicated uh issue than that we, yeah. we will give it right now because um, I don't want to take away from what you guys have done. Now, Drew, um, you were cooking in Philly at this time. And the interesting thing about Tired Hands and the beer scene is that like it was pushing. It was wild. It was like, how crazy can we get? Um, did you feel it was the same way in the food world that it was just pushing, pushing, pushing to be – not like molecular, but just like how yeah, how yeah. wild can we I get on the Philly plate? I think Philly still kind of has that a bit, which I think isn't always the right thing. Um, but um, yeah, I think at that time, like that's everybody was trying to make their mark, right? Like I think like what Tired Hands did is they made their mark yeah. and you start falling into that niche and you get more into it. And then you, you start following the path of success, you know, like people, Oh, people love this. And you just start following it more. And I think food will ultimately do that. That's like kind of the name of the game. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I felt, I felt like a lot of that was going on. It was like, everything was like a chef driven X chef driven this, which mm. chef driven means like, you know, what the bar we're sitting in right now, that, that um, you know, it was a gastro pub, which was like totally like a vibe. And, you know, hmm. the Memphis Tap Room was like a chef driven yeah. bar, which was like kind of like a unique experience and hit Philly hard and like Philly kind of tape. Oh man, like um, Pub and Kitchen with Johnny over there. Yeah. Like, that was the coolest restaurant when I was a young cook because he was doing really cool, interesting, you know, takes on like modern food and then had you know like skating mm-hmm. a la miniere on the menu next to a burger and like that was <laughs> I, I still right, think right, that's right, cool. Right. Like that that's it was really interesting. So yeah, I think I think the scene was pushing a lot and I always kind of found myself wanting to be with that, but I always found myself at a place like a meat. You know, or like a very traditional yeah kind of place in that that or or wanting to be in that realm and like wanting to be you know i always found myself opening the older cookbook because <laughs> it was it just felt it felt more right yeah. and like when i did my time at the cia it was like i was so psyched to be like working like escoffier room you know instead of like any modern thing you know i don't know it, so so yeah, it's an interesting scene. Yeah, I mean, there's something about yeah those basics and understanding it and 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 working that and then making it your own. Um, all right, let's take a quick musical break because I want to talk about the bar that you're sitting in and how Meeting House came to be, how you guys all met, and um, you know what? We'll end. We'll start thinking about your Eagles take now because we're recording before the playoffs on Monday. Oh God, um, you're not gonna you're not gonna get I very mean, interesting like, takes from us, unfortunately. But I'll start guys. thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, here we here we go. Uh, we have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm sitting here with Colin and Drew, two of the founders and owners of Meeting House. And Drew, you said something about restaurants being so chef-driven and sort of singular in focus as the old trend. Um, Meeting House has four principal owners, co-founders, which is I've seen as a trend now where restaurants are opening with multiple partners, um, multiple people with their own identities and backgrounds. How did you guys not only find each other, but find that you had enough of a singular vision collectively to this open is, up a new spot? A funny question because <laughs> me and Colin have known each other for what is it, 20 years? We've been friends. Yeah, I think we're coming up on. I think yeah, we're coming up on twenty. My best friend, yeah, um, wow. yeah. Um, probably the closest person I am to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 just like a lot of things when you're, um, you know, things just happen kind of gradually, and like mm. these connections just kind of happen gradually. Um, and but but the oldest relationship by far in the group is is mine and and Drew's. Um, and he, you know, I don't even think I was aware of the fact that like you did um, culinary votech in high school and that you'd mm. been kind of working in kitchens um, when we were in high school. Um, but, you know, he, he had been. Uh, it wasn't really until I started kind of getting into like beer stuff that I started to really like be aware of Andrew as like a a culinary person. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and yeah, like he helped us out at tired hands and like, we did some work together there. And that's kind of like when I started to become aware of like the industry as like mm. a, a thing, you know, as like a culture unto itself, uh, and a way of like kind of looking at the world and a, like a, a means of kind of like expression. Um, that was continuous with my interest in beer that they're not separate that like and that Got it's it. not just about like food and beer pairings as like tastes you know right. it's about like how the cultures around food and drink are not in any way separate from each other unless you force them to be separate which is like maybe something that i'll dog ear for later yeah. um as like maybe some of what we're reacting to but um but yeah, so so met Drew in like two thousand three, two thousand four, um, and then I know, right? It's crazy. And then uh, I worked with our other partner Marty at um, at Tired Hands. Um, mm -hmm. He had done kind of ops stuff, uh, compliance, you know, insurance, uh, some bookkeeping, like all the stuff. He's just like he's all the stuff that like. People like me and Drew, who are like, you know, ADHD creative people, uh, just simply are not built for. Um, he is like, yeah, dude, I got it. Like, he just he, he just uh, takes care of it. He is like the God world's most like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, prayer hands all around. I know, I know. So he's he's just like such a perfect kind of um, ballast for the other three of us who are by and large, like creative people in our fields and uh, maybe, dare I say, um, emotional to yes. a fault at times, uh, temperamental at times. Um, he's very steady. 
And so then our, our fourth partner, who actually really chronologically in terms of conceiving Meeting House, was my first partner, is is a guy called Keith Shore, named Keith Shore. Called? That's weird. Uh, a guy yeah. named Keith Shore. Call him that. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. So Keith is someone who I also met through um, Tired Hands. He did the... He's like a designer illustrator who did the branding for a Danish beer company called Mikeller or Mikeller oh, yeah. for yeah, quite yeah. a long time. So he worked for them, I want to say 13 years and really like the, their brand is pretty distinctive and yeah. yes. his work is pretty widely celebrated in the beer industry. Uh, he created really one of the most distinctive brands in all of craft beer Um and uh, he's very rightfully kind of become installed as like a fixture in the beer industry. He also happens to be from uh, Bucks County. He went to high school with Kristen. He was a couple of years. Yeah, Kristen's my wife, for those of you listening who don't know Kristen by name. But uh, so, yeah, so and she now teaches at that school, which is funny, um, sort of small you know, little, I, it's, little, Philly. It's, it's very it's, Philly. It's very, very Philly. Philly. Very so, Philly. you know, I met this guy through this Danish beer company. And he's like, oh, yeah, I live in Bucks County. I, like, went to the same high school as your wife. And, uh, you know, it's just, just crazy, crazy stuff. She wasn't my wife at the time. But in any case, um, <laughs> yeah. So we connected through beer stuff. And we really connected over, uh, like, a desire to focus because Mickler mm. makes so many new beers all the time. Uh, yes. Certainly in like the late 2010s, they were making so many new beers all the time. Tired Hands made a lot of new beers. Mm-hmm. And we were and That was really, the trend. That was the trend. Small batch, small, small run. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it, it's cool from a kind of creative point of view, I guess, like for the people who are creating these beers, but for the people who are like kind of executing them and taking them from concept to product which was my role at tired hands was like executing these ideas and it was keith's role um at mickler in some ways he wasn't brewing the beers but you know the brands were he was responsible Mm -hmm. for creating the brands um it's really tiring um and it sort of feels like you have to go like an inch deep and a mile wide all the time uh so we were like well what if we created a form for ourselves to kind of go deeper and narrower um so like simplicity is certainly like an aesthetic element to what we're doing but the real element is like focus you know like the real kind of philosophical element so in any case that's the foursome sorry to have kind of bogarted that a little bit true but it's you know um, no 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 it's great to hear and 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 because it sort of dovetail to what drew was saying before about being drawn to understanding the basics. And I was, I was reading one of the articles and um, that was written about meeting house talking about how like, and sort of what you were just saying, Colin, like there isn't a thrill to keep finding the new thing and having the crazy special and doing the one-off and, and things like that. It's about creating something that is familiar, but a better type of familiar than it, than it has existed yeah. or needs to be. And, you know, the thing is that you're going up against these institutions in Philly that are worn in and not Mm -hmm. worn in in a bad way, but like have decades of legacy, if not longer. And so you're, you're creating like a new neighborhood spot. And that's a, that's a bigger lift than being like, we did a one-off beer, didn't really work. We're moving on. Like you're creating something that needs to be permanent. 
So what what goes into that mindset? Because look, you have three beers, you serve roast beef sandwiches, you, you know, knowing what your creative backgrounds are, that is definitely a pivot. Mm. Um, but why? Beyond just saying like, I don't want to just, it's, it's yeah, a tie, yeah, yeah, you have to do yeah. something new all the time, but like, why I, this direction? I, I mean- I'll start this one. And Colin, Colin, the reason Colin is saying that, that he's bogarting on this, he, he, he has more of the answers. He's, he's more eloquent too with explaining them. But, um, <laughs> Oh, Drew, funny. you're, Thank you're doing a great job. Don't um, sell yourself. But, uh, it, it, for me, it, it starts from this, like this, this level of, um, nostalgia that I think when me and Colin started talking mm. about what he wanted to do for his next step after tired hands, like, it started as us having to force each other to just hang out because we were like not seeing enough of each other. And we we're like, shit, man, let's get coffee once a week, which ultimately right. turned into us talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. industries a lot because we care about them so much in the, in the process. And then ultimately what Colin wants to do and like how we're going to get there. And it, it, I, I think for me, like at least from the food end of meeting house is like, I'm like looking at the places my dad brought me when I was a kid great bars, great neighborhood bars mm-hmm. and small restaurants mm-hmm. and, and hangs and Irish pubs, old American Irish pubs. And I'm like remembering the like the romantic version of the Turkey club I had sitting with him. Yes. I promise. Maybe not, not the, the actual, actual version, version, but, but the, the idea the romantic of it. version in my head <laughs> is so much yeah, better. Yeah, and yeah. that's what, yeah, I'm, of course, that's what of course. we're trying to hit is like, you know, going to the Clam Tavern in Clifton Heights where my dad went every year for his birthday <laughs> and and eating the baked clams sure. there. And that's like, that's what I'm trying to represent because at the end of the day, I, I feel really comfortable in these spaces. And, and it's like a lot, they just rule. And, yeah. and I think like trying to celebrate that nostalgia, trying to celebrate um our past and those traditions with both the aesthetic and the food and the booze is is what we're trying to shoot for um the con yeah there's something there's something about you know like nostalgia wasn't a big wasn't as big of a a a thing for like how i wanted to approach the beer and beverage part of 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 all this um But there is like a certain kind of cultural nostalgia to it in that, and this is a little bit the point that I kind of dog-eared earlier. In some ways, I Mm. feel like the 2010s, especially the late 2010s, like craft beer, and that's a term Mm -hmm. that I use in like quotation marks because I do feel like (laughs) craft is a slippery term and it's lost its meaning in some ways to the point where – you see people who definitively work in what normal people would consider to be the craft beer industry wearing shirts that say fuck craft beer. Um, right. There's like kind of a countercurrent, but also like to my mind, craft beer is like an era that ended before I got into the industry. It's, you know, Sierra Nevada or anchor sure. or victory even more locally, but it, regardless of all that um, in some ways, those movements took beer and like put it into like a terrarium. You know what I mean? Like took this thing that in its like natural state is drunk in corner bars or at barbecues or whatever. And like put it into this terrarium where you stare at it 
and you talk about it and you think yes. about it and you right. take it you tick it off your okay i drank i had i had one ounce of this beer so therefore i will i have no need to have it again um that's a thing and if people want that to be their hobby i don't begrudge them at all but that's not interesting to me personally and when i thought about the type of the, the my favorite beer drinking experiences none of them were in like brewery tap rooms with concrete floors and like high no. ceilings with exposed duct work and like the hum of pumps nearby. Um, they were in, uh, whether it's a corner bar where I had like somehow a high life that was like below freezing temperature and yet uh, remained liquid or, best. you know, on like the hottest day of the year um, or like, being in Spain, a country that's not even known for like its beer culture, and having perfectly poured beers at any cafe at 1.15 in the afternoon. Yeah, fuck it, I'll have a beer. And the foam is gorgeous. Yeah. And the barista, bartender, whatever, takes their time with the pour. Like, this is better than a 16-ounce can with a sticker on it of IPA. Uh, just to, to to me, this is just better. So anyway, to kind of like bring it all back for me, it wasn't so much about nostalgia per se, as it is like, what if you take the experience of like going out on the limb and seeing like, what can beer be? Like, what happens if we put this crazy shit in beer? What happens if we name this beer, this crazy thing? What happens if we make this insanely self-referential mm -hmm, line mm -hmm. of beers that are like ironic in every aspect uh and you and then you kind of take beer back to like kind of its more natural state like to me the knee jerk the reaction isn't beer got too decadent in the 2010s beer craft fuck craft beer let's all drink high life i love high life but like the beers that i wanted to make weren't just high life they were their they were their own thing yeah, but they they were made with an awareness of those experiences of going way out on that limb. That's very long winded, but it's all by way of saying that journey in the 2010s was important, but it's not what I. You mentioned a pivot. This yeah. is the reason for the pivot for me is like when I really think about what I enjoy, it's not being out on that limb. So. You know, the question is always just like, okay, you made this new thing. Why is it better than the thing that existed? I mean, Andrew right, always, yeah. Andrew always says like, I won't put a dessert on the menu if it doesn't pass the following test. Is it better than a warm brownie with a scoop of vanilla ice cream? And I think the same could be said, you know, for, for beer, for drinks, for anything. It's like, Every bar needs to have a million house made, like new, brand new invented cocktails. And I'm kind of like, are they better than a Negroni? Probably right. not. Are they better than an old fashioned, a Manhattan, a Manhattan. Fashion. Any, yeah. any of the above. And, you know, to say nothing of the fact that, like, can these bars make those drinks in a way that does them justice? Eh, it's probably a mixed bag. But in any case, um, sorry, that was See, way off. No, way no, no, no. And listen. <laughs> Listen, you, you, you got to go out to realize that uh, maybe what you like is home. And, and I, I think that if we all hadn't gone on that journey, I would say 2005, 2006 through the 10s with like food mm -hmm. and drinks. Right. 
I don't think a lot of us would be back here being like, I just want the best version of something that like looks yeah. simple, but a lot of craft goes into it. Right. Now, beyond the food, beyond the drink, I think Colin, getting back to what you said, it's like the place where you want to enjoy these needs to be a place that feels like home and a place that feels comfortable. Yeah. So what went into the design? What goes into the music soundtrack? Like what, what goes into like the aesthetics of meeting house? Um, and why, why did you, why did you want it to match, I guess, this ethos that you were just talking about? Yeah. Well, this goes back to, I alluded to the fact that initially, uh, like I, I, my first of these three partners was, was Keith. Mm-hmm. He and I were trying to open a, brewery like a brew pub i always maintained that like a food and hospitality element was very important to me that if i was ever to open a beer thing it would have to have a food and hospitality element because of that like terrarium thing that i was talking about like i wanted these beers to be served in a specific kind of environment um and uh and so we were like, all right, we're, you know, we're looking for funding to buy a bunch of stainless steel process equipment and move into a space that can, that can, that can handle that and that can make beer. We're looking for three phase power and we're looking for a garage door and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and ultimately we're looking for a scary amount of money. Um, mm. So we sort of walked up to that line, like to the point where we were looking at a space in South Philly that was a, 5,000 square foot rectangle with like three garage doors. And I know the spot. Yeah. And like, we, we were like, this is a, this is an amount of money that is going to, we're going to shit our pants every day. Like we are signing up for every day, white knuckling Mm -hmm. it because there's like no margin for error here. Um, And it's going to be hard to take this space and make it into the type of space that I want this, this lived in Mm -hmm. kind of space. Like when it comes to the brew pub that we were trying to create, the pub part was at least as important to me as the brew part. Um, And Mm -hmm. right around the time that that prospect was seeming not that smart, um, this space that was then the Memphis tap room it was like we were made aware of the fact that it was it was potentially going to be available, um, hmm. and Kismet. yeah, I know, right? Um, someone had mentioned to mentioned it to us before, but we like weren't ready to entertain it as a real possibility. I was still very much in the like puritanical. I need to own my own equipment to make these beers myself, and you know, on some kind of brewer dogma about like you know. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, whatever. And, that that that's you shedding your 2010 skin. Exa- exactly. And so, and then when we heard again, hey, it's still available. It like hit our ears anew, and I was like, yeah, you know what? Fuck it. First, we were like, maybe there is a way to make some small amount of beer on the premises, and uh, supplement it with something brewed on contract. Uh, and we ultimately abandoned that and decided 100% of the beer should be brewed on contract, just being being practical. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of how we came to have this space. And the space does so – to answer your – to come back to your question yeah. about like the environment, the space does so much yes. of that work for us. We got to move into a space that has been a bar since 1935. Our neighbor down the street um, – 
her family, her great uncle bought this bar in 1935 and her family ran it for like, I want, I think like 60 years up into the mid nineties. And, um, and we have these incredible old pictures and it's just this great corner space. It's got these glass block windows that you could kind of see in the background there, um, where, where Andrew was sitting and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it lets in a lot of great natural light and, you know, the back bar is really, really old. I had heard that it was originally bought from a Sears catalog in the thirties or forties. And it's like, it's simple, but elegant. It's kind of got a subtle like art deco feel to it. And then the dining room area is kind of like nicely separated and the ceiling height drops and the floor height kind of raises. So you get this kind of cave effect. Yeah. And then there's a side door that I think originally would have been the women's entrance because men hung out in the bar room. Sure. Men only. Um, And it's just like the space does so much of that work for us. So because a lot of like where we're coming from is this like reverence for older things, you can call it nostalgia, but like I like to think of it as like reverence and acknowledgement and and recognition. Um, So, you know, we knew – let this space be what it is and, and I love that accent it here and there with things that are our taste. But like there's the back bar has these kind of 90 degree elements. Again, it's sort of a subtle art deco thing. And you see a lot of that with deco, those like just 90 degree angles. So we were like, all right, there's glass block windows that are 90 degree angles. Obviously the floor is these one inch by one inch checkerboard tiles that are, you know, 90 degree angles. The back bar has all these nineties, what if we did 90 degree, you know, four by four square tiles behind the bar? Um, and then that just kind of led into this whole 90 degree angle thing. So it's like, we're just sort of working with what's here. Um, and, uh, and then serving things that feel like they should be served in a room like this. It's, we want to do justice to the fact that like Drew is a, uh, you know, a very, very much a real (laughs) chef even if the food doesn't look chefy or chef driven, um, I worked in breweries for a very long time, um, and or a brewery, um, if I'm being if I'm being honest. But we only have these three beers, uh, and I fully expected people to come in and be like, "Why are there only three beers? Why is the menu this simple? You guys clearly don't know what the hell you're talking about." But for the most part, people seem to get it that this is on purpose, and I think part of that has to do with how harmonious everything yeah. feels. The menu. Uh, the food menu, the drinks menu, the room, they all kind of just like just sit nicely together. Uh, and it's it's just that perfect combination of like our experience and knowing what the hell we're looking at and the space just being yeah. so great. Yeah, but I mean, listen, you guys are like a, a month or two in when we're talking right now and to have to even use the word harmony uh it's you can feel the intention um congratulations to you guys both i cannot wait to visit yeah, probably dude. thanksgiving uh okay. if people want to check it out or stop by um where can they go and um you know what i'm not going to waste my time asking about the eagles <laughs> go birds, say go go eagles, even though yeah, go they birds, will probably go birds. be go birds they'll probably be out by this time this airs but if people want to visit in real life or on instagram uh where can they go yeah, so on Instagram, we are Meeting House Beer. Um, if you want to come check us out, we are at 2331 East Cumberland Street. That's the intersection of Memphis and Cumberland Streets. We're 
uh, kind of just north of the Fishtown neighborhood, not far off 95, not far off Frankfurt Avenue, tucked into this little neighborhood that everyone argues about the name of. Is it Old Richmond? Is it East Kensington? Is it just Kensington? Is it Port Fishington? Maybe it's Fishtown. I don't really know. I don't really care. It's lovely. Um, yeah, you can also... Um, our one like account that we release beer to is Pizzeria Bedia, uh, which is in Fishtown. They have our dark beer, Living Thing. I think it goes great with their menu. It's like a dark lager. And uh, so you can kind of get a taste for what we're doing if you happen to be there. But I encourage you to swing by the pub and drink the beer here. And maybe also have like a roast beef sandwich and a really, really nice salad and talk to our delightful staff. Yeah, uh, listen. If you if you listen to this whole interview and you don't want to go, I don't really know what you're doing. Um, thank you guys. Thank you yeah, to Kristen you. for connecting us. Yeah. We have a song, of course, from the archives, and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. She's got a lot for us She can't go home too quick Wolf's hungry, he hasn't eaten all day Follow her, she's getting away She knows she's got no time to
Want to cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower? Register now for PASA's 2024 Sustainable Agriculture Conference. Discover resources, services, and products at our expansive trade show and explore more than 70 educational sessions on climate smart practices, food justice, soil health, and more. Featuring a dynamic lineup of speakers, including Reginaldo Hasle Marroquin, farmer and founder of the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and CEO of Tree Range Farms, and Reverend Dr. Heber M. Brown III, pastor, community organizer, and founder of the Black Church Food Security Network. Find your community at PASA's 33rd Annual Conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 10th. Register now at pasafarming.org slash HRN2024. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash HRN2024. Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Uh, we have Jocelyn McKenzie back after an eight-year hiatus. Uh, you were on previously with Pearl and the Beard. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Hi, Greg. How are you? It's been a while. Yes. Uh, I think it's like early 2013 when we last spoke. I can't, I mean, I was actually searching in my emails and I think you're a hundred percent right. So your memory is fantastic. Oh, I, I cheated. I went back and listened to <laughs> our episode. Um, and I have two, two notes from there. One is you gave full eye contact during all of your performances. <laughs> was that a good note or like a avoid this woman kind of a note? I think it's just a note. Um, and then the other thing I had is I, I remember your episode, particularly because the three of you, um, you and your two bandmates were just so charming throughout the whole thing. <laughs> and I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> we are, it's charm city USA over here. So for those who want to take a quick pause and go back to episode 146 uh, in our archives to hear kind of the prologue to this, uh, please do. But in the interest of putting a button on it, uh, how did the band wrap up? Well, thank you for asking about that. You know, Pearl and the Beard, we had so much fun together. You're right. And, it, you know, we we enjoyed charming the pants off of each other. Um, you know, it just turned that we had been at it for a really long time. And, you know, when you get into your 30s and you've been, you know, a band for almost a decade, suddenly, you know, you can find yourself wanting different things. So we all just were in different places with what we wanted out of our lives. And the best decision for everyone was just to part ways. And so now, you know, Jeremy, our guitar player, he has a, a lovely wife and family with a beautiful child. And Emily, our cello player, she, you know, is still making tons of music. Jeremy is too, actually, but um, Emily is had done a lot of cello playing on Broadway. Uh, and you know, she was doing her thing and, uh, as well as of course, you know, writing and improvising and, you know, I've been working on my album really ever since then. So we all stay in touch. We're all good friends. We just, you know, that just wasn't what we were doing as a group anymore. You know, it's, it's super interesting. We've done this show long enough now to have, you know, bands and performers come back in different iterations what was the, you touched on, but like, what was the feeling when you knew that it was, it was done to, to call it? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Well, it was heartbreaking because, you know, we had been working on our last album beast for a while and, you know, we just knew that the parameters of it, it wasn't going to allow us to tour. So I was really sad that we were going to kind of release an album and not be able to tour on it, but that just ended up being the timing of what worked best for everyone. Um, so yeah, of course it was, it was heartbreaking and, and very sad for me. I can't speak to the other two. Um, but 
you know, the the fact that we went out with such a huge blowout show, you know, we oversold Bowery Ballroom by like 150 tickets. People flew in from literally all over the world to see our last show. And that alone, that experience was so moving to me that I had to walk away just so grateful and, you know, counting my blessings for all of the amazing people that we've met and the places that we've been able to go over the years. And, you know, so it was bittersweet, but man, what a, and a tremendous farewell we were given. Do you remember how that night ended? Like what time and where you were and who you were with? <laughs> I do. I remember uh, we were starting to get nudges from our tour manager, Stephen, because uh, the venue was going to have to ch- start charging us for overtime for all of their uh, employees who were going to have to keep working super late. So he was like, okay, you guys, you have to wrap it up. It's time to go. So it was nearing um, 2.33 in the morning by the time I got back to Brooklyn and um Steven drove me home and dropped off my stuff in the last of the merch. And, um, and I just was like alone in, in my room in my apartment and my roommates at the time, I had just met them and kind of just recently moved in with them right before that show. So they didn't know anything about me. So it was kind of amazing because I was able to go home with zero fanfare and just, I passed out and I, I slept so soundly that night, but it was an incredibly late night. People were having to like, you know, be forced out of the venue because everyone just wanted to stay and hang and sing along. And it was, it was quite a party. And then actually the next day we realized we weren't going to get to say hi to everyone at the show. So the next day we just had a meetup spot uh, in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg. And we were like, OK, everyone just like come to this bar all day long. We're going to be there uh, to say goodbye, you know, especially people who came from out of town. So it was like a, a family reunion. It was fantastic. One of the things that was really of note in the episode was how you all took turns crafting songs, writing lyrics. How did you begin to unwind that process mentally and then find your own voice, your own songwriting, uh, your own style Mm -hmm. as the time separated you from the band into your own solo project? Oh, Greg, that's a really good question. Um, I've been writing as a solo artist really my whole life. So uh, as a writer... I kind of was just continuing to do what I had always done. Um, you know, writing with Pearl was its own experience because, you know, I would have my songs that I would write on my own and then we would come together and have our own writing process with the three of us. Um, so I didn't really lose anything there in my writing process. But um, in terms of actually bringing the songs to life and performing them and and recording them, I am not really an instrumentalist. I don't consider myself one. And um, so working on Push, it was really an incredible thing to call in different string arrangers to record string quartet arrangements of every song. So there are actually five composers who made Push and with me and Emily is, is actually one of them. And Emily plays cello uh, in the string quartet on the album. Um, so she was hugely integral to the process of making this. And um yeah, so it was just amazing to get to, you know, have these songs kind of in the bank and then hand them over to the composers and say, do whatever you want with them and then give them back to me. And that was an amazing collaboration because I got to just, again, like let go of the reins and then whatever they got back to me, that's what it was. You know, I made a few changes here and there, but for the most part, we kept it pretty much exactly what they wanted to hear. And it allowed this collaborative voice to shine uh, in a way that that really supported me as a writer, um, but gave the songs completely new life. Did you find that any of the songs changed meaning 
when they got handed back to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Particularly um, the Brave Ones, which I'll play a ukulele version of shortly. Um, that song, when I handed the demo off to Sam McCormley, who was my kind of right-hand man on the project, he was my co-producer and wrote four of the string arrangements, um, and he did all the beats on the album. Uh, he That demo was was really like chirpy and, you know, kind of upbeat and, and, you know, this melodic little number. And Sam turned it into this like dark, swampy, minor key beast of a song. And it just blew me away. Like it totally gave it a new personality to me, which was such a powerful moment. But yeah, we had a lot of moments like that on the record, which was great. Can we hear a song? We can hear a song. I was just talking about the brave ones. I wasn't going to start with it, but I can. Yeah, that makes. Let's do that. Let's, let's do that. I'm going to just adjust my mic, and I'm going to do my little trick and put a little reverb on this so it sounds extra nice. You hear Perfect. that? Very nice. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> here we have Jocelyn McKenzie live on Snacky Tunes. Centuries of silence gone by, little Julia. 
apples and some peaches and my ah. A dream of love will happen in the snow We'll be the brave ones We'll be the brave ones We'll be the brave ones One of the other through lines from Pearl and the Beard and now your new project is one Ani DeFranco, who I have to admit is one of my all-time favorites from when I was in high school to 25 years later. Uh, I believe Pearl opened up for her and then she joined you on your EP. How did the relate- relationship form? Well, we were introduced by Ani by our old book- booking agent, Susie Jang, from then she was working with Fleming artists who also booked Ani. So Susie suggested us as an opener for Ani. And uh, we ended up opening for her, I think it was 26 times over the course of several years. And we just really clicked. I mean, you know, her, her fans were incredible and her team was incredible, but she's an incredible human being. I mean, the first time I met her, when, when I looked in her eyes, I was like, she can see my soul. Like I just was convinced that she could see through my body and into my spirit. And, and I think when you have an experience like that, you know, you kind of just, I don't know, for me, I, I, I guess I just get really humbled to it and open up my heart a little bit more. So it was easy to take risks around her. You know, it was easy to try new songs on the road with her and, and, and her fans were so amazing and, and she was so supportive that it, it just became a, a friendship very quickly. And, you know, uh, when I knew that it was going to be our last round of touring with her, one of the last nights, I just kind of, I was like, okay, well, this is the last chance I'm probably going to ever get to ask her this. But I just kind of went up to her and I was like, hey, would you ever want to write a song together? And she was like, yeah, sure. Send me something that you're working on. And I couldn't believe it. She was just like, so game, you know, I was like, okay. Uh, so I sent her some, some demos and she ended up contributing a bridge to my song Centenarian. And that just felt like, oh my God, like I had the biggest boost of confidence in the world where one of the, like a legacy artist was interested in working with me. It was just so humbling and just got me really excited to just keep making more stuff. And so as push developed, I just kind of kept her in the loop. And then eventually uh, she agreed to put it out on Righteous Babe. And I'm so grateful. Uh, You lead your own songwriting courses, uh, intuitive songwriting. I'm curious, when you work with such an icon like her, what does she bring to the process? Is she guiding you? Is she just giving you the bridge? You know, how does she allow you to level up or come down to you, but you don't feel uh, overshadowed by who she is and her legacy? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, you know, in, in our case, you know, we really only collaborated on that one song. So I can't say that it's, you know, a, an ongoing thing for sure. But, you know, in that case, she just kind of sent me this brilliant additional part to a song that only really had a verse and a chorus and she sent in this bridge and I was like that's perfect it's fine um but especially with with new songwriters and and using our intuition to touch on songwriting as a craft I think it's really important not to think about 
career or legacy or levels or anything like that, because music is our universal birthright. You know, we all have songs in us. We all have music in us. We can all sing. Talent is not a part of it for me. Talent is something that we can hone. It's something we can work on. But music and singing and songwriting are their own really very important things to me as a human being. So I know that she supports that, you know, so that alone was enough to know that she was my peer in that way uh, that, you know, music is is something that we used for a spiritual connection with other people. And, I, and when I say spiritual, I don't necessarily mean religious by any means. I just mean that it's not material. You know, it's like when you give someone the gift of a song, that's something that stays with them forever. So I can't say that, a, you know, any kind of I, I wasn't intimidated. I just was like so excited to to meet a kindred spirit in that realm. Uh, for the listeners who don't know about Righteous Babe, uh, I highly encourage you to look up the history, the artist model, um, why it was so incredible when it was founded, when it was, and what it, the freedom that it allowed Ani and all the artists afterwards. What does it mean to you to join a label with such pedigree uh, and to find to have that as your home? Oh my gosh, Greg! Like you were saying earlier, you know. I wanted to be on Righteous Babe since I was a teenager. I mean, I know it's really true. It's really true. And I have to say, and I, if Ani hears this, I'm sorry. I was a little bit more in the Tori Amos camp when I was a teenager Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, fandom, I would say. I was familiar with Ani's music and I really loved it. But I, I loved her legacy of being an independent entrepreneur and complete indestructible wayfinder even more then I loved her music. You know, I liked her songs and I loved her guitar playing. I truly admired her independent spirit and all of those things put together created this amazing wave of, of just, she just paved the way for so many independent artists and, and we're not all even aware of the work that she did. Um, and it wasn't even out of like, you know, now that I've gotten to know her a little bit, I can't even say that I, and this is my speculation here, but I can't say that she was like, and now I'm going to change the world. You know, like, I think she was just doing her thing and it just kind of happened that way. I mean, like she probably maybe at some point also said, yeah, I'm going to go because she wanted things to be different. You know, things were things in the record label industry and even still today, you know, are really questionable. And so to work with Righteous Bay was a dream because I was like, they have the ethics that I want to embody as an artist where it's like music is for everyone. This is not a cool kids show. This is not a popularity contest. This is about getting good music into the hands of listeners who really care about what they're listening to. And all of Ani's fans are like that. And I hope to get to connect with more of them because these are such passionate listeners and it's just an incredible thing to be a part of this group of musicians. And particularly now there's so many amazing artists on righteous babe right now. Um, Gracie and Rachel resistance revival chorus, like all these amazing, powerful artists. It's, it's just so humbling to be a part of that roster. I, uh, I have a daughter that just turned one and I cannot wait to start playing her records for her along with accompanying lyric sheets uh, to just to give her a path of like your own voice and your own unique identity. So I, it is so exciting for you to be there and I found it a home. Uh, can we hear another song? Oh, we can. Sure thing. Uh, well, I'm going to switch now to my Omnicord. And uh, actually, can you hear my heater? It just started going on. It's just like a nice uh, accompaniment. Okay, great. You know, so we're, <laughs> we have a little it, heater percussion then. It's a very real COVID time recording. So <laughs> Exactly. All right, here we go. 
This song is called Better. This is my Omnichord. Can you hear it? Oh, yes. Listen up. The whole world's in the flux of a fever. Sent to search and destroy by the ether. Everyone's either breaking up or breaking down. Who'd have known we would both end up smoldering, lonely? Now I've only one thought when you phone me. Will you heal me from bottom up or top down? Cause you make it better, 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 better. You make it better, 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 better. You make it better, 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 better than it was. Simmer down, no one said a thing about forever. But I need you right now more than ever. Praise and thanks to the space-time continuum that it's always now. Cause you make it better, 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 better. You make it better, 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 better. You make it better, 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 better than it was. We have all lost it battle before, and we can't stand to lose anymore. But if we don't let go and get vulnerable, then fear will have won the whole war. That's no victory that I can afford. You and I have been mutual blessings for ages. On with staff with which notes on what pages. The melody to a song gonna get written down. Anyhow, we will come out the other side smiling. And I'm grateful you're here and you're trying. Oh, let's go for it, bottoms up and top down. Cause you make it better, 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 better. You make it better, 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 better. You make it better and 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 better. So many people might not know this about you, but you are a medium. Yes, I am. Uh, And I had to look this up because I knew the word clairvoyance, but I did not know the word clairaudience. So can you explain to people what that is and how you use it in your songwriting practice? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Yeah. So psychic and medium are kind of two different things. Psychic is really talks about the extension of our physical senses. So in the same way that, you know, we see, hear, touch, taste, smell, we have extensions of these senses in kind of an extra sensory way. So like clairvoyance 
is equivalent to like, I saw a vision, right? And you hear that, you know, people talk about that. But when you would hear someone say, oh, I heard a little voice or, you know, I, a song came into my brain out of, out of nowhere, that's called clairaudience. Um, you know, spiritual touching is like clairsentience, you know, just knowing something is claircognizance. So, um, the psychic senses have really informed my writing for a very long time because when we get quiet enough to listen, for me, in my experience, there there's music everywhere. So I'm really just kind of listening to what is already there and then trying my best to go through a physical process of, of expressing it out loud. Um, the Brave Ones that I played earlier was an experience like that where I just... I just heard that whole song really like I didn't really do much. I was just in the shower and all of a sudden this, this words and melody just came together actually better to the chorus to better. Um, I'm just kind of hearing it and then singing it out loud. So um, this is a, this is something that we can all practice if, if you're interested in it. Um, I believe that everyone has access to these senses and it's not, you know, it's not a magical power. It's, it's nothing um, extraterrestrial. It's, it's a very human thing. Uh, that I experience in a very real way. And um, I love listening to the songs that are outside of me because then I get to become the translator and hopefully collaborate with, you know, whoever might be sending them from wherever they are and, you know, do a little co-collaboration with other realms. It's kind of great. For those who might not have known they've experienced it or maybe had an inkling at it, because so many artists and creatives talk about they don't actually even know where they got things from that their hand was just moving or they opened their mouth and the, the lyrics were there to the best of your ability when it's happening, how can you describe it? Or what does it feel like? So people can begin to look for it. Oh, what a great question. Oh, I would say the experience is just a lot like when you meet someone for the first time and you feel like you've known them forever and you and you just kind of fall into conversation just very naturally and you don't even question it and you find yourself talking as if you you're picking up from where you left off with an old friend and you actually have to like check in with someone and be like wait we just met right <laughs> you know um that's what it feels like when a song comes in to my my ear or into my brain in a clear audience way you know and then i get to just kind of make friends with it and go oh you're visiting me right now, you know, on Tuesday at three in the afternoon while I'm at the grocery store. Okay, great. Um, and then, you know, try and get to know it a little bit and, and catch up, you know, it's, it's like, then you have to catch up like, okay, well, what have you been doing? Where, what do you, how do you want to sound? Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that, that everyone has access to. And I think another example is like, you know, when you're thinking of a friend and then they call you or, you know, you just have a little hunch in the back of your head, you know, I should take my umbrella today, even though there's not a cloud in the sky. And then later that day it rains, you know, it's like those instinctual knowing that, you know, I think it's so easy to silence and, you know, call ourselves like, Oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, that's not real. That's just my, that's just me. But like, no, it's real. And why not follow it? You know, see where it can lead you. My imagination isn't that exciting. So when stuff like that comes in, I get very excited that I have an opportunity to get new information. Incredible. Well, we want to make sure we have time for one more song. Push is out. By the time this airs, it will have come out on Righteous Babe Records. Uh, where can people find you, stream the record, check you out, follow you along with you? 
sign up for your classes. Ooh, thank you. Um, yes, well, all of my stuff, uh, the music is going to be available on RighteousBabe.com. And I am on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as Jocelyn McKenzie, spelled M-C-K-N-Z. So Jocelyn M-C-K-N-Z. Uh, and I'm also on Patreon. And Patreon is where I'm exploring some more, mm. uh, you know, in-depth looks of, at the work and, you know, sharing some card readings and meditations and kind of crossing over between music and making and mediumship and all the different things I do. Patreon is a great place to find that. And that's Patreon um, slash Jocelyn McKenzie. One last thing uh, you said is life is a song that must be played by all for all. For those of us who cannot carry a tune or play a musical instrument, how do we live this sentence to its fullest? I would say to trust, to just Mm. trust. You know, I think it was uh, Maya Angelou said something like a bird. I should really memorize this quote, but it's like a bird doesn't sing because it has a message. A bird sings because it has a song, you know, and when I can trust that I am a human being, just trying to figure out what it's like to live in this world and music can actually help guide me to that. Um, it helps me connect with other people and to connect with myself, you know, and anybody else's idea of what talent or success is, is really none of my business. So I get to stay out of that and just stay with, stay where the joy is. And music is where the joy is for me. Incredible. I want to thank the team from Rosella who joined us earlier in the show Uh, Thanks for listening this week. We will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. What are you going to take us out with? I'm going to play Beam of Light from Push, uh, which was inspired by going to a show for my friend Jason Anderson. Music inspires, music inspires music. Thank you. Let's hope it's not eight years again before we connect. Thank you for being (laughs) on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. With a little heater for background, too. I'm going to tune here. Oh, tuning patter. We had this joke eight years ago. <laughs> I know, right? And meanwhile, I didn't even play any instruments eight years ago. Oh, my. Oh. What did I play? Like a shaker, probably? Something like that. I barely... Very charming, though. No one even noticed. <laughs> I barely play instruments now, so we're doing our best here. Okay, here we go. This is Beam of Light. Is that turn to Talking about art and life. We walked to the train, I took your hand, and I said, Let's listen to the sounds of the city again. And I don't understand the pain of being awake, away, but I know that somehow we will all be together as a beam of light one day. You broke three strings, you were hard on yourself, but it really didn't matter to anyone else. You shared truth, love, and hurt, you shared weird, let and dirt, and it all made the pattern of my favorite quilt. And I don't understand the joy of being awake, awake, awake. But I know that somehow we will all be together as a people of light one day.
Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.